This is the second full day of our session on loving kindness and related immeasurable states of mind. Immeasurable meaning cannot be measured, means boundless, means beyond our comprehension in terms of how far they extend and the benefit that they bring to us and to others. This is from the Pali Canon. It is called the Metanisamsa Sutta, Discourse on the Advantages of Loving Kindness. Thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living near Savati at Jetavanana, Jetavana at Ananda Pindika's monastery. Then he addressed the monks, saying, Monks, Venerable Sir, said the monks by way of reply. The Blessed One then spoke as follows. Eleven advantages are to be expected from the deliverance of the heart, also translated as release of the heart, by familiarizing oneself with thoughts of loving kindness, metta, by the cultivation of loving kindness, by constantly increasing these thoughts, by regarding loving kindness as a vehicle and also as something to be treasured, by living in conformity with these thoughts, by putting these ideas into practice and by establishing them. What are the 11? They sleep in comfort. Two, they awaken in comfort. Remember, Kisei suggested falling asleep last night doing loving kindness for our body, for ourselves, for others, and awakening and picking up the practice of loving kindness. Three, they see they have no evil dreams. Four, they are dear to human beings. Five, they are dear to non-human beings. Six, Devas and gods protect them. Seven, fire, poison, and sword cannot touch them. It doesn't mean that people can't be injured or even killed, but touch has a different, different meaning here. Eight, their mind can concentrate quickly. Nine, their countenance, their countenance is serene. Ten, they die without being confused in their mind. 11. If they fail to attail, attain arhantship here and now, they will be reborn in a favorable world. So, <coughs> meaning if for some reason we don't attain full awakening in this lifetime, then we will be reborn in a, a realm in which we can continue to practice. These 11 advantages are to be expected from the release of the heart by familiarizing oneself with thoughts of loving kindness, by cultivation of loving kindness, by constantly increasing these thoughts, by regarding loving kindness as a vehicle, so a vehicle for life, what can carry us through life, and also as something to be treasured by putting these ideas into practice and by establishing them. 
And then Tanisaro says uh, in his translation, these are the 11 benefits that can be expected for one whose awareness release through goodwill is cultivated, developed, pursued, handed the reins, and taken as a basis, given a grounding, steadied, consolidated, and well undertaken. Given the reins, given the reins is interesting. It's a slightly different connotation than as a vehicle. It means that loving kindness is driving our carriage, our vehicle. And we are the ones who have the reins. Kisei mentioned that kindness is not something that we put on and not something that we learn as a brand new way of living. It is innate to our true nature or our awakened nature. Awakened nature is not something outside here, outside of us. It is also not something in the future. If it's something in the future, then we'll always be chasing it. If it's something outside of us, then we have to sometime, somehow grab it and stuff it inside of us. It is actually the fabric of our being, of our very being. Our life is woven out of awakened nature, born from awakened nature woven from wisdom and compassion, the two primary elements of awakened nature. All lives, all of existence, has been woven out of wisdom and compassion since forever, until forever. To rediscover it, to reawaken it, is a gift, a great gift one that we can give to ourselves and also to others. Don't believe this just because this old monk or some tulku you read said this. You have to investigate it for yourself. This is the essence of Zen practice. We're not handed something to believe, except we have to have enough faith in ourselves and in the practice to continue it. Investigation is the heart of our practice. Because only when we investigate and discover something for ourselves do we really, truly believe it through our own experience. Investigate it for yourself. As the Buddha said, with your own inner lamp. He said, be a lamp unto yourself. Many people misinterpret that as meaning, oh, well, I'm in charge of my practice, and what I discover is inevitably true not true, unless we have access to true clarity, to the light, the luminosity of true clarity. So use your own inner lamp. Discover it. Expand its brilliance and use it to investigate for yourself. You can look at anything and ask, Is there wisdom there? Is there compassion there? So look at the floor. Is there wisdom? Can you discover wisdom in this floor? 
Can you discover compassion in this floor? Our life has been woven out of wisdom and compassion since beginningless time. It is the foundation, it is the warp and the weft of our life. The unique pattern that we call me has been woven on the background of wisdom and compassion, woven with the threads of cause and effect. Not all of the threads of cause and effect are we in charge of. Some we are. So on this background, this fundamental foundation of all of our lives, wisdom and compassion, our life is woven with the threads of cause and effect. Unfortunately, we have forgotten what the foundation was. And we have taken over ownership of our life. Oh, that's my achievement. Then, oh, see, I was the best. Or, that was a stupid mistake. I'm the worst. And thus we weave suffering. And we separate from the foundation. If you look look at my robe, you can take anything. Look at my robe. We begin to see the mistake of thinking that we own this life. The vast robe of liberation, we call it, when we put on our okesa or raksu or vagesa. Vast robe of liberation. Liberation is composed of what? What does liberation mean? Liberation from what? To what? It means awakening to our innate wisdom and compassion, having access to it. Where is the wisdom in this robe? This robe is sewn by old women in Japan who specialize in making priest robes. And then they pass that knowledge on to younger women who in turn pass it on in turn to other women. It's a specialty of women and considered a a sacred way of life, a religious occupation. So there's wisdom in the weaving of the fabric in how it is cut and how it's pieced together to fit the particular person. You can apply this to all of your clothing. In this robe, I especially marvel at the collar. Everything that I sew, like Samaway and and so on, it always seems to tear out at the shoulders, but by some miracle or some wisdom these women have, it never tears out at the collar. I don't know how they do it. There is kindness, too, in it, even how it is folded when it arrives in a box. It has strands of white silk that 
tack it together until we snip the threads and pull them out and then lift up the robe and it unfolds. There's compassion in the fabric which doesn't wrinkle and is easy, very easy to wash and dry quickly. There's kindness in the length of the sleeves which remind you continually to be mindfully aware of what your hands and arms are doing or the sleeves will drag. Looking deeper, there's kindness in the ancestors who passed this robe to us. And I'm talking not only about this physical robe. Part of this robe dates back to India, part to China, and part to Japan. this vast robe of liberation. It's a wearable history of our practice, a reminder of returning to continuous practice. And it is the warm skin and flesh of the ancestors that protects us throughout night and day. This robe, this physical robe, and the robe ever-unfolding robe of practice. A very lovely practice you can do is to look at something, it could be anything, and see if you can discern the wisdom and compassion inherent in it, like we did with the floor. You can try objects first, like a soap dispenser or a utensil in the kitchen. It helps sometimes to start with inanimate objects and then try with your own self. Can you see the wisdom and compassion in your own body and mind? So you can try it right now. Look at your hand, hold your hand up. You can look at your hand or feel your hand if you don't have sight one kind of sight. Can you see wisdom in your hand? Can you discern wisdom in this hand? Can turn it over, look at both sides. Is there wisdom in this hand? Then look, is there kindness or compassion in this hand? Even though kindness is an inherent part of our deepest nature, if we are honest, we can see that many things cover it up and prevent it from being accessible at all times or from being expressed. So then we have to look at what covers it up. This is a very interesting question. What covers it up? What closes the heart up, as Kisei said? We have to be able to discern when the heart is open or closed. 
So for example, if you would close your eyes and imagine a very pleasant scene, yourself very relaxed and happy, perhaps alone, perhaps with someone you care for. Could be falling asleep at night. Any, any situation where you find yourself relaxed and at ease and happy. So feel how your body feels, how your face feels. Eyes, mouth, cheeks, neck, chest, heart, belly, hand. And then imagine you hear gunshots quite close. And see if anything changes. If so, what? What changes in the body, heart, mind? And then you realize, oh, it's 4th of July is coming. And people are trying out their fireworks. That wasn't gunshots at all. It was celebration and beautiful fireworks. And suddenly you see them in the sky. And what happens? as you relax and enjoy them. So that kind of practice can help us realize the sensations or compounding uh, aspects of body, heart, and mind that go with an open heart and with a closed heart. There's nothing wrong with a closed heart inherently wrong with it, but we need to know when it's closed and then experiment with going through life with a closed heart or an open heart. Or when is it appropriate to close our boundaries and open our boundaries. So we have to be honest and say that there are many things that cover up our inherent kindness, kindly attitude, friendliness, basic friendliness and prevent it from being accessible or expressed. When I pass someone and I bow, as is our custom here, and you're all doing it during session, if I forget to send metta their way, as I do that, then when I notice, I ask myself, what was distracting or interfering? How did I switch to automatic behavior and not include meta practice. Or if I'm washing dishes and I discover that my heart is closed, I ask myself, what was distracting me? What was interfering? When we look at our hand and we think, ooh, I don't like it. It's ugly. It's too old. I wish it were different. Are these very common critical thoughts obscuring our innate ability to see clearly? 
and to feel kindly towards everything. Or maybe it's comparison that does it. I wish I had longer fingers like my friend. You'd think it would be simple, kindness towards your own hand. But our vision is distorted. And we have to keep investigating by what? Not just thoughts, but the underlying belief. This is my hand. Therefore, it should be different better. This is my hand. Right there the distortion begins. And how it looks is a reflection on my self-worth, my value in the world. Then we're getting down to the fundamental distortion. And what fundamentally blocks us from expressing accessing the deep river of wisdom and compassion that's always flowing in our life, accessible through ourselves, through our body, heart, mind. Here's an interesting question that someone asked me a few days ago, which I've asked myself. How do I practice metta when I'm pulling weeds? You have to find the answer yourself. I have a practice that I do to bring loving kindness into pulling weeds. But what you discover works for you is more important and lasting than any answer I suggest to you. Here's another question. Is practicing loving kindness more elusive to you than practicing with the breath? If so, isn't that interesting? It's not a judgment, it's just an interesting observation. Hmm, why is that? Loving kindness practice, like absorption in the breath, starts as a concentration practice. Can we bring loving kindness, as Kisei suggested, to each step in Kinhen? When we try this, we have the incentive to stay in the room and keep investigating it, or to return quickly from the bathroom to try the one-round challenge. I love to do the one-round challenge. The one-round challenge is, can I be aware of loving kindness in each step and not lose track for one complete circle around the front row of cushions? Then once I can do that, can I do it for two rounds? Can I do it during slow kinhin and then during fast kinhin? And then can I be aware of loving kindness in each step as I walk towards lunch? Now where where is that loving kindness? Is it in my foot? Is it in the floor? Is it in the cement walkway? Is it in between? Where is it? Like absorption in the breath, loving kindness can become an expansive, wide open practice. So it begins as a concentration practice, a kind of discipline of returning to loving kindness practice. 
but eventually it can become an expansive, wide-open practice. Once we've cultivated loving-kindness, then we can spread it. I will abide, pervading one quarter, with a mind, mind-heart, imbued with loving-kindness. So we begin with what's in front of us. This is usually our field of concern, and that's about 90 degrees, which is a quarter, right? And occasionally we go, oh, what's over there? What's over there? We expand it a few degrees. But we forget the back. So we begin with the zendo. We begin with ourselves, then the zendo. Then we expand. So we expand to this quarter over here, this quarter over here, and that quarter back there. This is called geographic expansion. So loving kindness can be expanded in a number of ways geographically, so to the compass points or to the four quarters, and then above and below, around and everywhere. So adding above and below, and then like a great big ever-expanding bubble to the town, to the county, to the state, to the nation, to the whole world, and beyond. It can be expanded through relationships. So we can begin with ourselves and expand to those we love, our friends, our coworkers, our family, refugees, categories of people. Any time when you're doing a session in love with loving kindness for the four immeasurables, any time someone comes into your mind, automatically do loving kindness for them. They emerge in your mind to help you. It can be expanded by types of suffering. And to all as to myself. So you have a headache. So you expand loving kindness to everyone who has a headache. May you be free from pain. May you be at ease. May you be returned to health. So the phrases can be custom-made. There's a whole list of phrases in the, in the canon. The ones that we use are ones that I developed. They didn't come from the Buddha, by the way. I mean, they, they came from the Buddha, but I tailor-made them to what I feel is the difficulty, main difficulty in our culture, which is anxiety, pervasive form of suffering. And I made them to be easy. In the traditional phrases, it's a little bit complicated. It's, may you be free from pain and the causes of pain. May you be free from, may you have, may you have good health and the causes of good health, and so on. It's quite extensive. But I think for to, when we use phrases to support our loving-kindness practice, it's helpful to have them simple. So I simplified them. So maybe you feel tired. Ah, I feel tired. Oh, I can do loving kindness for myself and for anyone who feels tired. There's a lot of them around the world. Or maybe you have aching knees or aching back. Oh, I can do loving kindness for my back, my knees. And then for anyone in the zendo, guaranteed there are lots of people 
perhaps some pain somewhere, discomfort somewhere, and then expand out. These are instructions that people have been following for over 2,500 years. Isn't that wonderful? Instructions that have brought benefit to people for over two millennia, two and a half millennia. And now they have been given to us. May we carry on these practices for the benefit of the entire world. Technically, when you are suffering, and based on the energy of your desire to end your own suffering, you expand that energy to others with the same affliction, you're practicing compassion. When the heart is moved by our own suffering, we begin to recognize that same kind of suffering in other people, and our heart is moved. I remember the first time I had <clears throat> surgery, when I woke up and had to take my first steps out of bed, I thought, oh man, I have, I have never been kind enough to people who had surgery. It's a sad, sad thing about being a human being that we have to learn through our own experience to be compassionate. Although there's a natural compassion in children if they're raised with love. Uh, one of our, our grandsons, when he was about four, he saw a donkey and he went, oh. <laughs> like he just loved the donkey. It was the first time he'd ever seen a donkey, but something in the donkey awakened his heart of kindness and compassion. Loving-kindness is fundamentally a kind, open attitude of the heart towards ourselves and everything. So it's, it's going into the post office with a friendly attitude towards the people behind the counter who may be having a really hard day, or the people in line in front of you, behind you. If we practice it long enough, it becomes a basic attitude. Instead of the common attitude, Everything is going to turn out badly. We hold the attitude, everything is fine, as it is. It doesn't mean that we don't work to change things. It doesn't mean that we don't work to change things. We recognize that there are things that need to be changed. But everything is fundamentally as it is. And from there, we work. Think about it for a moment. If you cook with anxiety or irritation, which we've all done, instead of joy, or even investigation, does it affect the food? There's no right answer. It's for you to investigate. Does it, in fact, affect the food? How does it affect the process of cooking? You, the cook. Does it affect people who receive the food? We worry about organic or locally sourced, but what else goes into the food? If you garden with anxiety or irritation instead of kindness, does it affect the plants? If you draw or paint or make something out of clay or build a retreat hut, does the basic attitude have an effect? 
because what we hold in, in our minds and our hearts as we do something, does that have an effect? Certainly it does on you. But does it affect anyone or anything else? If you think that it doesn't, if you think that it doesn't, that it's just confined, that our difficulties are just confined to our own private heart-mind, then you have an underlying belief that we are all separate. And I don't think anybody in this room holds that, truly holds that belief that we are all separate. But we often act as if we are. Another frequent question, and one that people are often reluctant to ask, is what if I don't feel anything when I practice loving kindness? I think there's something I'm supposed to be feeling, and I'm not, so therefore I'm failing. What if it just seems like rote recitation when you say the phrases? Then you need a seed. Someone or something you feel a simple kindness towards, like, oh, like that. You know, he didn't know that donkeys can kick you. He just saw this creature with big eyes and kind of a sad face and fur, hair. Oh. So you need something that you feel simple kindness toward. The Dalai Lama used a puppy when he was being taught loving-kindness practice. Puppies and babies are easier in general until they poop on your bed (laughs) or begin crying unconsolably at 2 in the morning. Can you find a seed? Can you find someone or something you feel warmly towards? Can you do that now? Can you conjure them up in your mind as happy and relaxed? So conjure up whatever could be your seed for cultivating loving kindness and imagine them happy and relaxed. Whether it's an animal or a person, it doesn't matter. How do you know that you feel warmly towards them? Is there some change in your body? Maybe in your eyes, your face, your mouth, your chest, your heart, your belly, your hands. So if you feel even the tiniest change, and you imagine as vividly as you can someone or something that you love being happy and relaxed, then take whatever you notice and cultivate it. Feed it gently as you would a a small fire. Let it expand in your own body. Quite gently. 
and then let it expand out into the room. See if you can hold that field steady. When it collapses, which it will, then you go back to the seed and you start cultivating again. So often in the first few days, if you haven't done a loving kindness session before, in the first few days, you might say, oh, I don't feel anything. That's fine. But keep, keep looking, keep checking in the body. Is there some change when you're practicing loving kindness, especially when you bring someone into the field that you simply feel kindly towards? It could even be the nice postmistress in mistresses at the post office in Klatskanai who are very kind. Loving kindness means a fallback position of basic friendliness. So now please close your eyes again and imagine yourself walking down a street, let's say in, in, in a city, wherever you live, wherever is nearby. And conjure up many different kinds of people coming towards you, one at a time. So watch. Can you maintain a field of basic friendliness, open-heartedness, as each one approaches you and passes? I'll give you some suggestions. A woman who has a baby in her big belly born and to be born. A tall, erect soldier in uniform. So each one comes towards you and passes you. A short, stooped, aged person. Donald Trump. A neo-Nazi with the word hate tattooed on his forehead. A homeless person who's asking for money. A Catholic nun. A man in a suit and tie carrying a briefcase and walking quickly. A policeman in uniform. A policewoman in uniform. Just notice any differences. 
a policeman on horseback. Notice any differences. A child running ahead of the parent. Someone who looks frightening to you. So we keep practicing in this way here during Sashin, so that when we are in a city, then we've already begun the practice. We've initiated the practice, and we can carry it into the city. So for each one, you notice what happens. Notice what happens to the field of loving kindness. Does it change? Does it waver? Does it, does it flare up like a flame and then die down? Loving-kindness is the antidote to anger. Its near enemy is romantic love, saccharine love, clinging love. Compassion is a very similar experience, but it's triggered by becoming aware of suffering. So loving-kindness is basic, kindly, friendly attitude. And compassion is triggered when we become aware of suffering in ourselves or other people. So again, close your eyes and put yourself on that street. Walking down the street. And here comes an aged, stooped person who looks confused and ill, walking uncertainly unsteadily. Now a tired-looking, heavily pregnant woman who is carrying both a toddler and a heavy bag of groceries. She passes and then Here comes a homeless person, one who is lying on a cement doorstep, asleep without a cover in the rain. And then you see a man in a suit and tie sitting on a park bench, weeping. Is there a difference in our experience between loving-kindness and compassion? Now try these. Close your eyes. As you walk down the street, you encounter a policeman who is entering a house where someone is screaming, He's got a gun! encounter, as I did a while ago, on the bus, a child who is crying and hitting their sibling. 
repeatedly ignored by the mother. The sibling's also crying. Back on the street, you encounter a person who's yelling at the homeless person to get the F off their effing steps. What happens to the field of loving kindness and compassion? Is there any change? What causes it? In the Vajrayana, they teach that equanimity comes first of the four immeasurables. Interesting, huh? They say that to practice loving kindness, compassion, or sympathetic joy, we must have a balanced attitude towards everything. In my experience, that's a tall order (laughs) to start with equanimity. In my experience, they actually go together. The four immeasurables all, all, all cooperate. Hmm? A certain amount of equanimity is necessary to practice loving kindness, and that's what we were just testing. To practice loving kindness and compassion evenly, you have to have a certain amount of equanimity. And practicing loving kindness and compassion consistently helps us cultivate equanimity. Practicing consistently requires time, blocks of time, when we are not interrupted, as in Sashin. So we practice in this very easy setting to have the practice instantly available in the hard times. Thomas Merton said, who was a a Catholic monk but also practiced Zen, It is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers, as he was surrounded by brothers. One of our friends is a Vajrayana teacher, and he used to um, be a Catholic monk at the same monastery where Thomas Merton was in Kentucky. And he said that he was practicing loving Christ. I love Christ. I love Christ. And then he realized, wait a minute. All these annoying brothers who drive me crazy are Christ. Oh, Christ. (laughs) (laughs) So back to Thomas Merton, same monastery. It is... (laughs) In deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love others for what they are, not for what they say. To love others including ourselves, for what we are, for exactly what we are. So please continue your practice of loving kindness and compassion. And please remember that anxiety is not love. Anxiety for someone may arise out of love, but it is not love. 
turn anxiety back to its source, back to love, and give that gift to yourself and others. If you're anxious about yourself, if you're worried about yourself, turn it back to love for yourself. If it helps in focusing as you're doing loving-kindness practice, use the supporting phrases. You don't have to stick to the ones that I made up. Use whatever arises in your mind. Say there's an individual you're concerned about or a news story or an unpleasant body sensation. So often when we have an unpleasant body sensation during during sashim, we think, oh, I'm not practicing right. Then instantly, ah, loving-kindness practice. Oh, may I be free of the pain of inner criticism. May everyone in this room be free of the pain of inner criticism. We think, I wonder what will become of my children when I die. They haven't been able to find good jobs or saved enough money to live on when they get old. Ah, time for loving-kindness practice. May I be free of anxiety about my children. May I and they be at ease and happy, whatever life brings them. Maybe a picture of your sibling arises in your mind immediately. Oh, may they be free from suffering and experience true happiness. And then you can expand it. May everyone, may every brother, may every sister, may every mother, every father, every child be free from and experience. So you fill in the blanks. The Dalai Lama said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. And then use the phrases as long as they're supporting your practice. But once the heart-mind quiets down and settles, then you can switch to a very simple breath practice, as Kisei reminded you yesterday. In the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, they, they use peace and love, just one word, as a support. So you can breathe in peace, which is so easy to do in this beautiful setting, peaceful zendo. Breathe in peace and let it suffuse throughout your whole being. Deep, deep sense of peace. And then breathe out peace or love to others. Please, please practice diligently. Applying it to everything that you do. Remembering to call the mind back when it wanders away. Call it back without criticism in return for loving-kindness, compassion practice. Use this time of concentrated, quiet solitude well. This afternoon and this evening, we're going to begin meeting in groups. For this session, we found that it really works well to meet in groups. There are advantages of meeting in groups. One is that often someone will ask a question that you didn't know you had. 
and there it is, and you get to hear the answer. Also, uh, the response from the teacher, sometimes when you've asked the question and there's a response from the teacher or a suggestion about practice from the teacher, sometimes we're sort of defended against it when it comes directly to us. But when they give a suggestion to someone else, it can penetrate our heart and make a difference to us. We call that a carom shot. It's like a billiard shot off the, off the side and then into the pocket, you being the pocket. So carom shots can be very effective in group interview. Teacher doesn't do it on purpose, it just happens. And also, especially when we're doing loving kindness session, we've found that the group experience of interview or expressing what's happening in our practice or asking questions can really connect people. You know, what our heart's true desire is, is connection, is intimacy. We desire it and we fight it. But when we share our experiences, we realize, oh, I'm not so different from everyone else. Or we hear another person's distress and our heart naturally opens in kindness or compassion. So particularly in this session, this is what we like to do. So do treat it like you're in private interview. So if you ask a question, look directly at the leader, at the teacher, and, and hold that space of, that you're used to holding in Sanzen, individual Sanzen. And the, and the teacher will look directly at you and talk directly to you if you have a question. If you're relating an experience, then open your heart to everyone in the room as you relate that experience, because it will resonate with other people. And please don't offer advice. You know, put your, whatever your professional advice-giving hat is, put it away. And just listen. So no.